And just like that, we're back. Another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast. Schedule's all over the place right now. I'm not even going to try and explain it to you. I'm not even going to put out a post or a schedule. Just it is what it is right now. Basketball is what it is. March is what it is. We will not say the O word. We call it the X season around here because it doesn't exist. I will evidence that by the fact that we've got a loaded podcast this morning. So thank you for joining whenever it is these things end up dropping. I promise normalcy will return soon. You've come through, though. I mean, we got a lot in the mailbag this morning. I want to remind you of a couple of things, okay? So it's Tuesday right now as I record this, as you're probably listening to this. We've got Late Kick Live coming up on Tuesday night. Now, I know what you're thinking. Josh, you don't do Late Kick on Tuesdays in the X season. Well, you're right. So since we're doing one on Tuesday night, why don't we just change the time as well? 5 Eastern, 4 Central, Tuesday night, Late Kick Live. There you go. It's like the regular season almost. In the regular season, of course, we do it three nights a week. Also, we are steaming towards our next benchmark, going probably a little bit quicker than I anticipated. That's fine, though. I want to do as many of these as possible. And what I'm talking about is our next Late Kick Show Owners Association meeting, which is just this massive Zoom wherein you ask a bunch of questions, you talk, I talk, we talk, uh, get a lot of stuff out of the way, a lot of questions answered, a lot of stories get told there that probably I would never even know to tell because I don't know you're interested in them. So when are we going to do that? Well, we're going to do it when I get over 2,000, and really every 1,000 thereafter that I cross on Instagram, which I've decided to take seriously in the last couple of weeks, that's when we'll do it. So we are steaming towards 2,000 right now at Late Kick Josh. Give me a follow there, at Late Kick Josh. I'll tell you what I've started to post some because I think, well, I don't, I know because you tell me, a lot of you guys like this stuff. When I go to games, when I cover games, I record a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, stuff like, you know, down a tunnel when a team's coming out of a locker room or going into a locker room in press conferences, uh, before the game, after the game, when the public's not in the building, all that stuff, stuff you don't get to see. I I tell you about as much of it as I can, but I also record it as much as I can too. Hopefully we'll have a whole lot of new content along those lines when I'm back at games on Saturdays this fall. So that's where I talk to a lot of you guys. That's where obviously I post some stuff that you won't hear on the show. You won't see it on the show. You won't see it on Twitter. I put some stuff on Instagram that's pretty exclusive to Instagram. So at Late Kick Josh there, steal five of your friends' phones, follow me there. They won't mind. They probably won't even know. Let's be real. And I've got some other things to get to, but you know what? We'll just do it as we go along this morning because I want to start diving in a little bit quicker here. And we will crank it up this morning with Matt. Matt says, what will it take for you to once again consider Ed Orgeron the right man for the LSU job? I've been watching your show for a long time. I've seen your opinion of him gradually change. From my understanding, you used to hold some type of admiration for him. Recently, and for good reason, the inflection and tone of your voice that you use when speaking about Orgeron reveals more than just the words you are saying. Is there anything he could do to make you feel like he can take our program back to where it needs to be? Much love from Baton Rouge. Hope you're healthy and happy. Well, Matt, I'm happy. I'm mostly healthy. Got one negative I'll talk about later. It's uh, very visible, so we'll talk about that later. But as for Ed Orgeron, let's backtrack here and let's let's frame it up if you don't know what Matt's talking about. So when Ed Orgeron came to LSU, I did not think it was the right hire. I, I'll just be brutally honest with you. I didn't think it was the right hire. I view LSU as one of the top five, easily top 10, and, and probably bordering on top five jobs in the country. So I thought that they could get someone more qualified than a guy who had never had success leading a program before. Okay, it was really nothing personal towards Orgeron. That would have been my blanket assessment, regardless of who they hired with that kind of resume. So then Orgeron comes in and he starts winning in 2019 and he has the right collection of coaches, the right collection of talent. You remember how 2019 went. Well, I've always been one to realize 
what I say matters as much as you make it matter, as much as I make it matter. I mean, what words coming out of someone's mouth really don't matter. What matters is results on field. So here's what happens sometimes. What happens sometimes is you say something, and then what you expected to happen is not what happens. You got to be smart enough and sharp enough to realize that. It's not hard to realize it. It's much harder to swallow your pride and admit that what you said was wrong. So I realized, wow, maybe Orgeron is the right guy for the job. I knew that LSU folks were attached to him at the hip because he's one of theirs. He's one of your own. It's natural to feel that way. And then there was this second part that a lot of LSU folks, along with Orgeron himself, and maybe they took the lead from him on this, they remembered how many of folks like me out there doubted that he was the right guy for the job. And so you kind of adopted an us against the world mentality. I felt it. I know it because I'm a lot closer to fan bases because I talk to you guys every day and I'm around you every Saturday than maybe your typical national media type is. So I dove in. I mean, I loved it. I embraced it. I couldn't care less whether I'm right or wrong. It was good. It was good for college football. It was certainly good for LSU. It was good for my show. It was good for everything. So I loved it. So I embraced that ride. I hopped on a little bit earlier maybe than some other folks in the national media landscape did. And so we rode that tidal wave all the way to a national championship. And it was fun because it was fun watching the story unfold. Well, now coming off of that, 2020 happened. And like Penn State, like several other programs, I'm willing to throw away a lot of the 2020 results. But there's a stench to me around some of the things that I feel around LSU that could extend beyond 2020. And I'm not even speaking, or maybe I'm not just speaking about some of the -the off-the-field troubles that are ongoing right now, even as we speak. We don't know how that ends up, to be honest with you. But what I'm talking about and what Matt's referencing is this press conference Orgeron had last week, I think it was Tuesday, where he was talking. I mean, it was a normal press conference and he was talking about practice that day. And I don't I don't know what moved him to speak the way he did, but he started going down this road. I played it on Late Kick Live. If you listen to the podcast version or you watch the show, you've already heard me talk about this, but I'm going to go a little bit further now. In one fell swoop. Ed Orgeron admitted that he had hired guys that he didn't interview, coaches that he didn't interview. He admitted that Durante Jones, who is their new defensive coordinator, was his fourth or fifth choice, but who cares because now he's here. He he said a lot of things that I thought were very ill-timed. There's no good time, in fact, to say those things. It's just not something you ever should hear come out of a leader's mouth, ever. I don't care if it's reality. I don't care if it's true. It should never come out of your mouth. So I said as much on Lake Kick. All right, I had some of our LSU folks, and I don't really mind this. I love interacting with you guys. Well, part of it's when you disagree with me. So a lot of you disagreed with me. In fact, over on the Go 24-7 board, I've been going back and forth with some of you who thought that I either took it out of context or I didn't know the full story. Guys, there is no full story to know. The full story is what was said. That's the story. I know what you mean when you say this. I'm, I'm not dumb. I understand the subculture. I understand the undercurrent. I'll give you an example. If you're a casual fan or a casual listener, one of the talking points right now would be, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. When Orgeron is saying these things, really what he's saying is maybe, let's say, the AD, Scott Woodward, forced a hire on him that he didn't want to make. And so this is Orgeron's backhanded way of saying, it's not my fault last year because I was hamstrung and I was saddled to some guys I didn't really feel like hiring. And when I say I didn't interview him, that's code for I didn't have an option. They were put on my staff. Here's the thing. I'm going to shoot that down in just a second. But let's assume for a second that's all true. Let's just play devil's advocate. I'm going to give you benefit of the doubt. Let's say that's all true. Even then, it is ludicrous to take that public. It's ludicrous. 
He's not paid eight fifty an hour. He's paid $8.5 million a year. There are some things, there's some attachments that come in a contract when you're being given $8.5 million a year to coach football. And one of them is you just got to keep your mouth shut or you got to be the bigger man in situations like that. And that, by the way, guys, is even if all that's true. I've heard those stories. I talk to people down there all the time. You think I haven't heard those stories? Of course I have. But let me remind you of something. If you're trying to convince me that Ed Orgeron was always staunchly anti-Bo Pelini, let's just say, does anyone remember what was coming out of his mouth in August of last year? Does anyone remember Ed Orgeron before Toe had ever met Leather in week one of a football game telling you, telling me, and telling the world our defense is already way better than it was under Dave Aranda? Well, it sounded like he liked Bo Pelini at that point. Sounded like he didn't have a whole lot of problem with the hires he had been, quote unquote, saddled with at that point. That's why I shoot a lot of that down. That's BS. Second thing, what benefit is there to ever telling anyone the coordinator that you eventually hired was your fourth or fifth option? Again, even if it's true, which I believe it is, I don't think he has reason to lie about it. I also don't think he had any reason to say it. Here's the devil's advocate for this. Here's the talking point that I've had thrown my way for this. Well, I like a coach who's brutally honest. I like a coach who's open about everything. No, you don't. No, you don't. I'm like you to a point. I like a coach who's honest. I love Ed Orgeron because of that. I love a coach who's forthright. I love a coach who doesn't coach speak you to death. I love all those things. And you know what? Me personally, it's not going to affect me whether the Durante Jones hire was the fourth or fifth choice or not. And it's not going to hurt me any if the locker room turns a little bit sideways on him down the road if the results aren't perfect early on and some guys who were number two or number three on the depth chart look at him and say, why am I not starting? I'll tell you why, because you were the fourth or fifth choice of the head coach around here. If he would have gotten his first choice, I guarantee I'd be starting. If that kind of stuff happens, it doesn't impact me. I'm just a host of a show. I'm just doing a podcast and a YouTube show over here. Doesn't impact me. It could impact LSU football, which means it doesn't matter if you nor I, nor anyone else loves when a coach is forthright and brutally honest and open all the time. Is it in the best interest of his program to always share those details? The answer is clearly no. I got people telling me, I love when a coach is open and honest. I bet you are. I'd love to hear all the inner workings. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in every one of LSU's recruiting meetings. I'd love to hear their player evaluations for every every kid in the state of Louisiana. Is he going to share that with me? Of course he's not. You know why? It would be detrimental to their recruiting efforts. There is nothing positive to be gleaned from sharing with me or anyone else publicly that Durante Jones was your fourth or fifth hire. Nothing. But yet he did it. So Matt, you interpreted that you have heard a change in my tone towards Orgeron. You are right. Well, here's the follow-up question. I'm going to ask it for you because you didn't ask. Do I no longer believe he's the right guy for LSU? Man, I don't want to say yes to that. Because believe it or not, according to the last couple of weeks, I love Orgeron. I mean, I love him as a fit at LSU. I really wish we had more of those unique cultural fits towards programs. I love, for example, that there's a guy at LSU that would never in a million years be the right fit at Arizona. And there may be a guy at Washington that would be totally out of his comfort zone at South Carolina. I like that because I don't think regionality and culture is a bad thing at all. I think it's a really good thing. But the reason why I've sort of tiptoed on that is because I think 2021 will tell the tale. I mean, we're, what, less than 24 months removed from a national championship down there, and you can't ignore who was holding the wheel when that happened. So I'm willing, if I'm willing to look at Penn State and say 2020 was an aberration, I think they'll be right back. Well, I can't, in good conscience, not say the same thing about LSU. That would be a little hypocritical. 
What I'm saying is my tone has changed because I do have less confidence in Orgeron being the guy there, obviously, than I did. I don't think the confidence level could have gone up anymore. So by default, it had to fall. But it concerns me because if those statements, if those statements remain just in and of themselves isolated, it's meaningless. This is something we won't even be talking about a month from now. This is something, as I said on the show, that we could be looking back on in November laughing at. If if Max Johnson or Miles Brennan has secured that quarterback job and everything rounds into form and LSU is going into that Alabama game with the SEC West on the line, no one cares about a press conference because that's all it is in an isolated situation. What I'm wondering is, is it a precursor of things to come? Is that indicative of the way that, let's say, the program is trending? If that's the direction the program's trending, if that's just a little microcosm, remember, press conference in and of itself meaningless. If it's a microcosm of things to come, then uh, don't really like that feel all that much. So, Matt, I guess the best way to get me fully back on board is to make it a microcosm, to make it a nothing. Speaking of nothing, it's what I hoped would be said about the um, comment slash question that's coming up next. But unfortunately, because this comment slash question is here, it means something is being said. So Kyle asked, what's up with your face, man? Love the show. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate that. So this could be what we call in the business an evergreen question. You could really ask this anytime, and I'd have a different kind of answer. I assume right now what you're talking about is this monstrosity on, what is this, the left side of my face? Maybe the right side as you watch. Listen, I, I just recommend you listen to the podcast right now, to be honest, so you don't have to see it. Here's what happened. So I had what I have self-diagnosed as an ingrown facial hair. Shaven. Occasionally it happens, according to WebMD, so whatever. I've never dealt with one before, but apparently some of you have. So I get an ingrown facial hair. Then it gets infected, which causes a little bump. Well, I think that, hey, I had pimples when I was 15. I'll just treat this like I did those. Big, big mistake. I cannot, in strong enough terms, advise against trying to pick at an ingrown facial hair like you did acne when you were 14 or 15 years old. It just doesn't end well. So now what we have is what I have started to describe as a facial hernia on the side of my cheek. Because I had a hernia one time, obviously in the abdomen. It looks like a golf ball under your skin. And this is not quite as big as a golf ball, but maybe like one of those mini pool balls. Easily as big as that. It's a marble. It's bigger than a marble, I would say. So now it's just there. And I don't know what to do about it. I've left it alone. And then I've kind of poked at it with my finger, not with anything else. I'm not making that mistake twice. Do I go to the dermatologist? Do I just put an ice cube on it and try and freeze it off myself? I have no idea. And I still, to this very moment, don't know. Uh, suggestions are more than welcome. JoshPate706 at gmail.com. It ain't fun. I'll tell you that. It is not fun at all. Thank you for noticing, though, Kyle. It really makes my day. Hey, I'll tell you this now. Some people in my business would have been triggered into a closet for about three months if you asked anything about their physical appearance. So while it worked for me and I was fine with it, just word to the wise, it's very much a case-by-case basis on how people would take that question in life and then times 10 in the media industry. Dylan is next, getting us right back on track. He says, what does it take to turn a team into a national brand? Can just winning turn a team that's a regional brand into a national brand? Clemson's rise over the past few years has made them a national brand. But is that only due to their success on the field or have there been more factors? Also, when does a team lose its status as a national brand? Well, Dylan, let's go in reverse here. So Nebraska football used to be a truly national brand. I would say they've sunk into a local brand. I'm not even sure that Nebraska at the moment is moving the meter regionally. And of course, that's just due to an extended period of non-national relevance. So I think the latter portion is be non-relevant for a long time. And over multiple generations, eventually you'll lose that appeal. 
The first part is tricky because I am not necessarily on board with that, Dylan. I don't believe Clemson football is a national brand right now. I think it's a super regional brand. So I think that it obviously has permeated well beyond the Carolinas and their old typical local slash regional footprint. But I don't know that Clemson football is moving the needle coast to coast like Ohio State or Alabama. I don't think they are. And it's not necessarily that it's their fault. It's just that it takes a lot longer to succeed at the highest levels than maybe five years or seven years before you start to develop that. You have to, again, cross multiple generations. Ohio State and Alabama have had multi-generational success. They were doing it in the 70s. They were doing it in the 90s. Well, Alabama, at least a portion of the 90s. And now they're doing it in this generation Alabama in a really big way. Ohio State never fell off really nationally since the 2000s. And so they matter to you. They matter to if you've got a kid, they matter to your kid. If you've got an older brother or dad or whatever, they matter to them and they matter to your grandpa. That's generational relevance. That's how you create a national brand. It also helps, and usually these go hand in hand, it helps having a nationally recognizable face of your program. So right now, Nick Saban is obviously at the forefront of that conversation. Nick Saban transcends college football. Nick Saban matters well beyond the boundaries of just this sport. When we had Nick Saban on Late Kick, for example, that mattered to some of my friends who don't even watch college football. I had Ryan Day on the same day, and understandably, because he's a brand new head coach, it was a huge deal to my college football buddies. But to folks who don't watch college football, you know, like to a, a girl I used to date back home who keeps up with me, she doesn't know who Ryan Day is. She absolutely would know who Nick Saban is. So a lot of those elements are what go into making your logo matter. Here's the best gauge that I ever realized. When you're going through airports and you're in different parts of the country, you're in Salt Lake City or you're in Houston or you're in Minneapolis, if you go into gift stores, some logos are in every gift store. That Bama logo, that Ohio State logo, usually going to be in pretty much every gift store. But there aren't many like that. There are not many like that at all. So I would say with Clemson, let's say moving forward, what would it take to turn them truly into a national brand? Well, the first thing they're doing is recruiting nationally. That helps because you get a tie-in to all the geographic regions through recruiting. Winning, which they have been doing and are set up to continue to do, that's at the forefront. And then you got to market yourself. You got to do it the old-fashioned way if you are not Oregon. If you're Oregon and you have an entire apparel company that you are synonymous with in terms of branding, then you can do it a little bit different way. I mean, Oregon is Nike. Nike is Oregon to people, at least in the athletic community. But if you're Clemson, you just keep doing things that matter nationally. You keep winning. You keep marketing. You keep recruiting. And then slowly, over the course of not one to two years, but five to 10 to 15 years, you see that tiger paw pop up more often in places that you never would have seen it before. All right, let's hit Kyle's question next. He says, what kinds of technology will be or have been game changers in the world of college football? And what do you think is next? I'm going to go in reverse order again. I tend to do this a lot. Kyle, I think ocular training and ocular strength measurement is at the forefront. And a lot of programs are already doing this. I've spoken about it before, I think. And what that is essentially is understanding that your eyes are no different than your arms or your legs in a sense that you work them both, but yet they may be of unequal strength. Some of you would know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're lifting right now and you're doing curls and one of your arms consistently goes a little bit higher than the other, it may be indicative that one of your arms is stronger than the other. Some of you have a leg that's a little bit longer than the other leg. You have all kinds of little idiosyncrasies about your body. The eyes are no different. The eyes sometimes, in fact, a lot of times they're finding out can be of varying degrees of strength. If you've ever been measured for contacts, sometimes you've found this lesson out. But what if you haven't? What if, for example, you're a, an ex-receiver 
and you have a catch radius of this, and you have a 40 time of that, and you have all the classic measurables already down. But let's say your drop rate is 13% higher when you line up on the right hash or, or further out than it is on the left hash or further out. Why is that? Well, as they're finding out, it's not just dumb luck. What's happening is you're using the inner eye, so the eye that's closest to the quarterback, that's your dominant eye when receiving a ball coming from middle of the field towards the side you're on. If you've got the weaker eye closer to the action, closer to the ball, it ups your percentage drop rate just a little bit. How do you figure that out? Well, you got to figure out first about ocular strength. And a lot of programs have been working on this. LSU, from my knowledge, was at the very, very forefront of this back in 2018, 2019. Now a lot of programs have gotten on board with it. But that's stuff you never would have thought about. You would have worked on your legs. You would have worked on your explosive rate. You would have worked on your hands. And you never would have even thought about these two things in your head that you have to use to see everything as being part of the process of catching a football. But yet, as it turns out, it's imperative. That's what understanding and application of science and technology has taught us. I'll tell you what I think is huge and has already been a game changer, and that is GPS technology for practice. GPS technology being every player is wearing a device that's no different really than the ones in your cars, except instead of tracking your car, it's tracking the player. It's tracking the force on their joints. It's tracking how fast they go rep to rep. It's tracking how many steps they take, how many reps they're taking, how much energy their body is exerting. And what we found is different players are capable of different things. I know that's a shock, but different players are capable of what they call different loads. And so it is all about load management these days instead of broad training. If you're, let's say, 48 years old and you play football in middle school, high school, let's even say you played in college and I don't care what level. Let's say you played at the highest level. I want you to think about what practice was for you. Practice was everyone's going to do the same thing in warmups. Uh, everyone's going to go through the same drills. And then you're going to split off maybe into position groups. But even within the position groups, then everyone's going to do the same thing. So a practice format would be on a grease board or let's say a piece of notebook paper. All right, uh, let's say flankers are going to go out here and you're going to work on five yard outs for five minutes. And then we're going to run flies for five minutes. And that's what your practice is going to be as an ex receiver today. Well, in the modern age, what happens is if you and I are both at the same position group, but my load management and my optimum load management in a practice is 75% of yours, you're going to go out there and probably do a little bit more work than me. That's lucky for me, I guess. But what it's trying to do and what it's all geared to do is put us in the best possible physical position to succeed. And also it's aimed at optimizing recovery after practice to get me and you ready for next practice. That's the biggest game changer. The biggest game changer to me has been GPS technology allowing data scientists within a football program to know each player individually. And they also structure an individual workout program for you based on all of that information. So again, take the same example. You and I play the same position. It may be that when we go in weight room and we do stretch and stride and then we go into workouts, back in the day, you and I would both do five sets of five on squats and then five sets of four on power clean. Well, these days, you may be over here doing lunges for three sets of 20, and I may be over here totally different doing hip flexor-related work because our individualized workouts call for us to do different things based on what that GPS and data has told our data team about who we are, just our physical composition and our makeup, who we are. It's really fascinating stuff, and I have been actually in talks with someone at a major program 
to really do a deep dive on this. Some of you may not be interested in it. I know a lot of you would salivate at this idea. So I'm working with them right now, working with this program right now. If we get the all clear, we are going to do a long form deep dive on this sometime over the summer. And I think when you listen to this person talk and you understand who they are and where they're associated and where they came from, I think you'll have both ears wide open because it's just, you can't even imagine the level of detail that goes into this, even relative to where the sport was just 10 years ago. It's not the 1960s or 70s versus today. It's like 2010 and 11 versus today. So Mars got a really good question here about the future of TV. And it's something that I'm glad he asked when he did, because I just had a pretty lengthy conversation about this with someone inside uh, the CBS ecosystem yesterday. So I'll answer it right after this. Samar asks, people have been speaking about how the NFL's new contract isolates Thursday night football to Amazon Prime and that the next TV rights package in the 2030s will consist of streaming platforms like YouTube and Netflix and Amazon Prime. Do you think college football will follow the same track when their contracts are coming up in the late 2020s or will the traditional audience of college football argue to keep the games on broadcast TV? Samar, there is a lot of skill and no skill simultaneously in answering this. So the no skill part's pretty obvious, I think. We're talking about the late 2020s and 2030s, and we're in 2021 right now, fully aware. I mean, we have to be fully aware. There will be a platform, multiple platforms probably. There will be technology. There will be bundling capabilities and, and options that don't even exist right now that will be at the forefront of the industry by that point. So I am of the opinion that you got to plan your future in very, very light pencil so you can continue to evolve and you can continue to adjust as the landscape changes. I was talking to an executive here at CBS about this yesterday. And I, you know, this is someone who is tasked with knowing all this stuff and knowing the landscape. And I said, man, I do not envy you because this is trying to nail jello to the wall, trying to understand and stay on top of this. And he said, you know, it's like standing on a bed of marbles because what is here today could be out from under your feet tomorrow. And we're trying to plan long-term content strategies and distribution plans and all this and that. And it's a bunch of stuff that just makes your head spin. Once you understand it, it's kind of like being on Earth versus being on the International Space Station and being out in space a little bit. If you're on Earth, you can never picture Earth. It's hard to picture. You've seen a globe before, but it's hard to picture it. Only when you get into outer space and you look back at Earth can you say, oh, that's what it really looks like. Well, that's kind of how this is, and it's hard to get into outer space in this business and to be able to fully wrap your mind around all that this entails. But I will tell you this. There's a shift even going on within this question right now, Samar. Right now, there was this. So let's talk about shifts. There was a big shift about oh, three or four years ago when everyone realized, oh, Amazon Prime's going to be big. Oh, Netflix isn't always just going to be mailed to your door. And Netflix was streaming by then, but they realized what it is now is not what it's going to be in the future. Every digital and social media platform does this too. Some of you aren't on any of these things, but it's really not hard to understand. If you think about Instagram, I think about Instagram when it first came around. And it was basically where my sister and mom and, and a bunch of girls that I knew went to post recipes and post different fitness tips. It was nothing. It was not even comparable to what it is now. These platforms continue to evolve. Just like everything else, the platforms evolve. And so Netflix right now, you're not watching a live game on Netflix. Ten years from now, you will be, probably sooner than that. Amazon, who in the world would have guessed that 10, 15 years ago, that place that you went to for a website to buy, I don't know, workout gear 
would be a place where you were going to watch the Rams and the Titans in 2025 or so. Well, that's happening. Actually, this upcoming season, that's happening. So, Samar, you're right in that. But here's the other thing that's happening. It was a trend for quite a while to cut the cord. Remember cord cutting? It was a big deal. Everyone's going to dump cable because it's so much cheaper to access these streaming options. And I'll get Hulu if I want to, or I'll get Netflix if I want to. Well, here's the problem. Every one of these giant media conglomerates and corporations realized, wait a second, we got to get in that business. We got to get in that sphere. And so then they all did. Well, guess what happened when they all did? The market became more competitive. Netflix all of a sudden couldn't charge what they charge anymore. They couldn't let you share passwords with your buddies anymore. And all of a sudden, you had to get a lot more competitive and creative, and all the content wasn't in one place anymore. And so now you got to be on Paramount if you want this, and you got to be on Hulu if you want that, and you got to be on Netflix if you want this, and HBO Max for that. And then all of a sudden, you realize, wait a second, this isn't much cheaper than cable anymore. And now what's happening, it's like watching a ping pong match. Now a lot of people have actually shifted and they've gone back to focusing on new and improved cable bundling. And there's a thought in the industry now that cable isn't going anywhere. And big broadcast rights going towards cable and a focus on cable isn't going anywhere. Now, I'm not telling you this couldn't change tomorrow. But what I'm talking about is, for example, you know, what if I told you there's a little whisper in the industry that right now, Monday Night Football, they'd love to get that contract back on ABC instead of ESPN. Why is that? Well, because they understand what viewing patterns mean and they track this stuff daily and they know exactly what you're doing. And over the air, all of a sudden looks a lot more valuable in the future, even than it did if we did this study two years ago. So Samar, I say all that to say this. I don't think anyone has the slightest clue what the TV rights packages are going to look like. What I think is there'll probably be a way to take advantage of all this. I mean, there'll be a, there, everyone will be a player in this arena. And it's a good thing for the leagues because that maximizes your earnings potential. I mean, that maximizes, for instance, the Big Ten's TV contract when it's coming up. The SEC just signed a huge multi-billion dollar deal with ESPN. It's going to continue to be that way because content is and always will be king. Live content, live sporting content especially. With Late Kick, we're in a really good place because we're doing we're doing live content of a different variety, but yet we are a content machine. This brand is a content machine and we can produce untold amounts of content every week and then you can get aggregation involved there, you can get social plans involved. Those are the entities that are in a really good spot, but some are to try and nail down exactly where they'll be. I don't even know where to start with that. Connor, next. Do you think anyone in the Big 10 could surprise anyone else this year? Sure. I think if Penn State was a contender, it would surprise people. I think they're at least with an outside shot of making that happen. I think Michigan would surprise people if J.J. McCarthy was the starter and then they really sprung on folks and they had a top 10 caliber season. I think that would be a surprise. Uh, Wisconsin, I don't think many people expect a lot out of, and it's probably because they look back on what they think was a disappointing 2020. And I think Wisconsin would have been a very good team in 2020 had they been able to maintain health and they had a lot of COVID issues and they lost their best receiving options that we got a small glimpse of in week one. I think it was against Illinois. And so, yeah, that all could happen. All those things could happen. What is the national consensus on if Indiana is going to maintain the juice that they had last year? Because I'll tell you this, they got a lot coming back. And Michael Penix, who will you know probably end up being the starting quarterback there again, is out for the spring. And they've already got good quarterback depth there. They may have the best overall quarterback depth outside of maybe Ohio State of anyone in the Big Ten. And it's Indiana. And they're getting Jack Tuttle and a lot of the guys behind him, for example, getting really good reps in the spring. 
They've got good receiver depth back. Tight end is excellent there. Running back's a little bit of a mystery. They got a lot of veteran experience on the offensive line. I would question the team identity about Indiana. And by question, I don't mean doubt it. I really do just mean question it. Indiana snuck up on folks last year. I don't think Indiana's sneaking up on anyone this year. So if they were able to improve on last year's effort, I think that may be a surprise to some people. So yeah, you can look across the conference and you can say a lot. I mean, Nebraska, what if Scott Frost got Nebraska to pop all of a sudden in year three? What if this was the year where Nebraska made that quantum leap? There you go, a little Big Ten preview there. I didn't even know it was coming this morning. 503 is up next. I'm pretty sure this was one of the podcast reviews that submitted a question because this is the one where you don't really have to put a real name in there. And by the way, if you haven't, I think we're close to 1,400 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you are one of the nine, at least out there, who has not already, drop what you're doing. Give us a five-star review there. If you don't know where it is, go right there to your podcast where you're listening. Scroll all the way down past all the episodes. And at the bottom, you can leave a five-star review and a comment because 503 did. And he left a question right there in the comment. He or she, I don't know. But here's the question. Oregon fan here. Out of the rest of the Pac-12, who do you think can take their recruiting to the next level and join USC and Oregon and help out the conference? I say Arizona State. What say you? Arizona State will forever be my answer here. UCLA could be that team. They have never, to me, seemed all in on that concept. Arizona State is that. Ty Thompson, for example, since you're an Oregon fan, you know where you guys just got him from. Maybe the rest of the country doesn't. Ty Thompson was not some in-state product. Ty Thompson was not some Northern California product. Ty Thompson came out of the state of Arizona. And Ty Thompson is one of many guys that if Arizona State could ever develop a recruiting plan to keep a bulk of the talent at home, would end up being one of the dark horse candidates nationally. To me, Arizona State is now what Texas A&M was for a long time. A&M was the biggest dark horse program for years and years and years because they were sitting in a place that was good for recruiting, just geographics they had on their side. It's a desirable place to live. I mean, Texas is a great place to be, just like Arizona is a great place to be. And it was untapped. So someone could go in there and really become a legend doing what no one's done before. And that exists right now at Texas A&M. Jimbo could end up being the best coach in the history of that program. I mean, that's what he could do. He could literally rewrite the history books there. Herm Edwards, and if it's not Herm, then the next guy, whoever we're talking about, independent of who the head coach is, whoever it is, or whomstever, could rewrite the record books at Arizona State. It just takes hitting one grand slam. You don't hit five singles. You go one for five, but if it's the grand slam, you're better than your neighbor who went five for five with five singles. Now, this does not apply to the sport of baseball necessarily, but in the world of coaching hires, it does. If Herm Edwards is that guy, which I selfishly wish he was, then that'd be great. But Arizona State, I think, is the answer to this question. I've always also been interested if anyone could properly harness Washington. Washington's a place, if you'll look this year, that has some in-state talent. Now, you're never going to build a championship-caliber product recruiting in-state alone at Washington, but Oregon has shown you anyone in the Pacific Northwest who develops a national recruiting platform and brand uh, can put forth a very viable product. You can compete with the Southern Cal schools, Southern Cal namely being the Southern Cal school, but also you can compete nationally. So I would go Arizona State there, and I would keep an eye on Washington too. David is next. He says, In your opinion, how long does it take to install championship culture and DNA into a second-tier program? I know that the process is not uniform across programs and coaches, but on average, how long would you expect the development process to take, and how much time should fans give the staff before they deservingly become frustrated? Well, if we're talking about a complete rebuild, David, 
which I assume you're talking about when you say second tier, I give it three years minimum. And the minimum here is because of a couple of things. Number one, year one becomes year zero. So year zero is kind of like Mike Norvell dealt with last year. When he walked in, FSU is seven different kinds of a mess. Year one, and then COVID obviously compounded things times 10, but year one almost becomes year zero. Because year one, I'm not even looking at your record at all. I'm looking at so many things. It's like planting a seed. Get the seed in the ground, get it properly watered, cover it with the right topsoil. No one is even thinking about the plant. Just like in year one, or as I call it, year zero, if you've got to root out a lot of the rot inside and you've got to completely weed out a lot of the bad roster parts and you've got to overhaul a staff and you've got to overhaul a lot of off-field personnel and you've got to completely change the directives and the culture and start getting people on the same page instead of 15 different ways of thinking, we're not worried about if you're going to beat Duke. We're not worried if you're going to cover 17 against Miami. That's not even at the that's not at the forefront or to me on the back burner. We're trying to just stop things from going in the wrong direction before we can even start to turn it and then start to hit the accelerator going in the right direction. So I say three years because I don't even count the first year. It's almost like year zero. Then the second year, that's where it's reasonable to start looking at wins and losses and using it at least as somewhat of a gauge. But really, I still just like to see the on-field product. Which way is it trending? Is it better this year than it was last year? And then year three, year three is where most of the roster, I would say 80 plus percent, should be your guys. The ones that are your guys, it doesn't mean you recruited all of them. But the ones who are still around by year three have fully bought into what you're doing. If not, they would have fallen away. They would have transferred. They would have done whatever. Also by year three, all of your staffing and off-field personnel are completely aligned with your vision and your purpose. You've hired everyone from administrative to player personnel to recruiting, etc. But then also your coaching staff, you've gotten a feel of whether your first round of hires were the right hires on the field, in recruiting, etc. And fourthly, speaking of recruiting, you've gotten your face and your staff's faces and your culture and DNA and your pitch in front of several layers of recruits now. The current class, the next year's class, the class after that. So the ball should really be rolling by year three. That's why Scott Frost at Nebraska bears really close watching this year. That's why Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech bears really close watching this year. Collins at Georgia Tech's a guy I'm really high on. They've won three games each of the last two seasons. This is his third season. He perfectly fits the kind of program that we're talking about here. So year three is when I'm going to look at wins and losses and no longer is it going to be enough to say, well, there's good energy. Well, you know, they're saying a lot of the right things. Now it's time for result. But I think, David, my answer is usually about three years. Rocco up next, talking about George Pickens and that big injury at Georgia. He said, I just listened to your segment on George Pickens. I normally listen to the podcast the day after. How do you feel about Demetrius Robertson? With his experience, do you think he has the potential to step up and be a leader next year for the offense along with JT Daniels and other guys? Rocco, I remember Demetrius Robertson's recruitment. I think he was out of the Savannah area. Now, this is my personal opinion. I want to stress that. I'm not speaking for 24-7. I never bought that Demetrius Robertson was a five-star guy. Thought he was a good receiver. Never saw the the fifth-star potential or production with him. Again, that's me personally. And remember this recruitment. He ended up committing to Cal. So he goes uh, as far west as you could possibly go from Savannah, Georgia. And it doesn't work out there. And then he transfers back to Georgia. And the talk then was, 
A former five-star receiver talent is coming home. This is really going to enhance our wide receiver room, and I'm not saying it was detrimental to it. I just don't think Georgia ever got quite the bump in production that they expected there. He's had some injury issues. A lot of folks do. So Demetrius Robertson this year, the question by you and a lot of folks is, is this when it's finally going to click for him? I got to be honest. I just think Demetrius Robertson is who he is as a player. It's a good, solid, serviceable option there. Not a game changer. Not ever going to break a game open. He's not a guy you have to double. He's not a guy you're going to formulate a defensive game plan around. He's just a good, solid role player for Georgia. I would look at someone like Jermaine Burton. To me, if we're identifying one guy instead of a collection, Jermaine Burton is the name on that Georgia roster, even counting the incoming guys, that I think you could count on to actually be a close replacement to the production and the role in that production that George Pickens would have played for you. Another uh, question from the podcast review section here. Rach09 says, with quarterback transfers having such a major impact over the last decade, do you see teams recruiting higher upside players with maybe lower floors, knowing they can always go to the portal to fix their problems if they miss? Missing at the quarterback position these days can just be a transfer fix away instead of a two to three year rebuild through recruiting. Rach, I think the answer to this is yes, but I think it's a mistake. So Rach is basically saying, do you think that if there's a risky quarterback guy out there in high school, do you think programs will be more likely to try and land him knowing that if it works out, great, we look like a genius. If it doesn't work out, oh well, he'll be gone and then we'll just go fix it through the transfer portal. Rach, the assumption there is that the fix will always be in the transfer portal and you'll always be a desirable destination for that fix. That is an extremely dangerous game. Even if the answers are always going to be there, it's a dangerous game. I don't know that the answers are always going to be there. So it's going to be a case by case. Obviously, some years there are going to be three big names in there. Maybe the next year there are none. Maybe the next year there are four. Who knows how that's going to work out? You don't. That's the point. As a coach, you don't know that. You can't forecast that. Second thing, this bears very close watching. I think it's going to take a couple or three years to play itself out. I don't believe the transfer portal is going to be as full every year as it is right now. What is going to have to happen is guys are going to have to learn through observation and they're going to have to learn through watching some guys really suffer because of poor decision making. There are way more kids in the portal than there are spots to land. And it's probably only going to get worse after spring practice. So a lot of people, you're going to hear post solutions to this and we need to fix this and fix that. No, you don't. You need to sit back, keep your hands off of it and let people learn a lesson and then let the process correct itself. Here's what I mean. If you're 15 years old right now, what are you, a sophomore in high school, but you're already getting some looks, you're getting some offers, you know you're going to eventually be a scholarship D1 player somewhere. And you're looking around and you watch the game right now and you watch the transfer portal right now and you see a lot of guys leaving programs where they're not happy. Well, here's what you're about to see as well. At 15 years old, you're about to watch some of the guys four or five years older than you totally strand themselves on an island with nowhere to land because they went into the transfer portal assuming there'd be a destination and there's not one. And maybe best case at that point, they can go back to their old program or maybe there's not a spot for them there either. And I'm 15 years old and I just watched that and I tucked that in the back of my head. 16 years old. I'm a junior. I see the exact same process play out. And all of a sudden it becomes more apparent when I get to college, I better really be sure about my initial destination because I'm looking at a lot of these guys. And whereas when I was 14, I thought, oh, I'll just commit somewhere. And if I don't like it, I'll leave. Now all of a sudden I'm seeing, hmm, I could leave but there's no guarantee that I'm going to have anywhere to go. Then I'm 17. I'm a junior or a senior. I've watched three cycles of that play out, hopefully depreciating in number 
But I've watched three cycles of that play out to where now the class of, let's say, 2024, whatever that would be, all of a sudden they've got the right mentality again coming out of high school and that they fully intend for that first destination to be their destination. And instead of a first option when you're unhappy, the transfer portal becomes a distant fifth or sixth option in the back of your mind, and it's a last-ditch result only for you. That could, and I think that will happen. So if you're a coach and you're planning your recruiting strategy at the quarterback position around there always being an abundance of readily available talent in the transfer portal, I think it's very foolish to do that. But as you ask the question, I have to answer it. I do think that will be the strategy of some programs. All right, this was good this morning. We had a lot of good questions. I told you guys. I'm going to say the word right now. I'm going to whisper it. Off season. There isn't one. Why would there be one? Why would you ever be desperate for content if you're in this business? Just ask your audience to give you questions. You see how that works out every single week, twice a week for us here. So thank you for powering the show as you always do. Remember, at Late Kick Josh over on Instagram, that's the big push right now. When we get over 2,000, we'll do a Late Kick Show Owners Association meeting. For those of you asking the question about merch, It may seem like nothing's going on. We are getting closer. We're working with a couple of different options there. That's that's the slight delay right now. But we've got some really good stuff. I told you, I'm not going to put it out. If I myself wouldn't want to wear it or wouldn't want to feature it, you're going to like it. You're going to like it because most of the ideas came from you. So that's a guarantee that you'll like it. So thank you so much for listening. Remember, Late Kick Live later tonight. We're going to get on that. We're going to have a lot more good stuff. We're going to have a whole lot of college football by the time the sun goes down today. And then you can wash it all down with some college basketball tonight if that's your thing. So for producer Jordan, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for listening to the Late Kick Extra podcast. Have a great rest of your day and God bless. Bye.